Well, some of you who've been around for a few years, um, and this is an odd confession for a pastor, I know, <clears throat> but I've never really liked preaching on Sunday, uh, on Resurrection Sunday. Um, I know that's weird, but it just seems, it seems like it's too big. It's too big to do it justice, and it seems like we should just probably just lie on our faces for 45 minutes or so. Um, it's, it's an occupa occupational hazard of a pastor is that you, you, you always know you can't get there. You can never get there. You can never get Jesus high enough. You can never do it. Um, much less on Resurrection Sunday when we remember the cross and what he, the price He paid for us. So, who is it on the cross? Well, we know who it is. We, we are Bible believers. It's the God of Psalm 97, before whom the earth trembles and the mountains melt like wax. That's the God who is on the cross. The God of Psalm 99, uh, where the psalmist says, "...let the peoples tremble." Let the earth shake. The, Psalm of, the God of Psalm 145, the God of unsearchable greatness. This is the God who is on the cross. The Creator God. The, the only one God. The, the, the eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, reigning sovereign of heaven and earth. This is who is on the cross, I'm sometimes asked by unbelievers or even sometimes Christians who are immature in the Word, they'll ask me, um, how can eternal conscious punishment be just? You know, if you took an in-depth look at the cross, you might not have to ask that question. It's a very revealing question because really, the question is revealing whom you're looking at. Now, if you're looking at yourself, if you're looking at the reflection in the mirror, you're thinking, eternal conscious punishment cannot be just. It's just, hands down, if you're looking at yourself, and you're looking at your own sin, which, of course, you don't think is all that bad, but as compared to perfect holiness, we know what it is. So, if you're looking at yourself, Eternal conscious punishment is completely unreasonable. But here's the thing I want to say to you. If you're looking at God, eternal conscious punishment is just. God says it's just, so it must be just. It doesn't matter if it offends you or not. God says it's just. My holiness has been offended. I am provoked. The God of Scripture says... If eternal conscious punishment is warranted, then how infinitely incomprehensible is the evil of your sin? And this is what, what I want us to think about. One thing I want us to think about, I don't want us to think too lightly of our sin on a day like this, which we're all prone to do. If eternal conscious punishment is just, how infinitely blameworthy it must be to treat the glory of God with apathy and indifference. 
just something I want us to think about as we think about the cross. Eternal damnation is not the most outrageous doctrine in, in Scripture. I've, tell, I've told you this many times. You know the most outrageous, the most scandalous doctrine in Scripture is what? That God saves sinners. This is a scandal. This is a scandal. A moral, cosmic scandal. God saves... A righteous God is saving sinners. This is what He's doing. This is what He's doing on the cross. How does God say it in Hebrews 2.3? Okay. The God of Psalm 97, Psalm 99, Psalm 145 is on the cross. What does Hebrews 2.3 say? And I, I, I want you to hear this and I don't want you to ever forget it. I know you know the text. How shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? How will you escape? You will not escape. No man, no woman, boy or girl, escapes if we neglect the great salvation offered to us through the self-sacrifice of the Son of God. There is no escape. So, as we remember and celebrate Resurrection Sunday, it seemed essential to me to remember His death this is a, a tradition at ICM. We always remember His death as we look at His resurrection. So the question is, why is the Son of God on the cross 2,000 years ago? Well, some of you may remember Mel Gibson's famous movie, The Passion of the Christ, 15 years ago. Has everybody seen that? I would trust probably everyone has seen it. Um, you know, when it came out, it was called anti-Semitic. Well, did the Jews kill Christ? Yeah. Did the Gentiles kill Christ? Yeah. We're all guilty, right? If we read our Bibles, we understand uh, Acts 4 tells us that Jew and Gentile are involved. But, but preeminently, who has orchestrated this? God. Right? We've talked about it the last couple of weeks. I quoted the text to you. Acts 2.23 This man, Jesus Christ, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What men of their own free will meant for evil, God meant for good. God is able to do this. <laughs> He's able to, to work evil into good. God of His own free, gracious, loving will redeemed His people through the wickedness and evil of these men. Ultimately, God the Father delivered up His Son, Romans 8.32. Ultimately, God the Son laid His life down, John 10.18. The crucifixion of God, and I want you to always remember this, was God ordained, God decreed, God planned, God orchestrated, and God initiated. You have to remember that. We talked about it last week. Jesus wasn't arrested in any real sense. <laughs> he surrendered. He's in charge. He was in charge last week. He's still in charge. But He has surrendered to this hour which God has ordained for Him. So as we contemplate the cross, I want you to remember Jesus doesn't get backed into a corner 
He has come for this. John 18.37 For this I have been born. So, why is God going to allow Himself to be scourged and crucified? Why is He going to allow this to happen? He is the Good Shepherd. And He's come for His people. And you can't stop Him. You can't stop Him from saving His people. You can't stop Him from interceding for His people. You can't stop Him from holding His people for a billion eternities. It's done. It is done. He's in charge. He's in charge on the cross. He's in charge when He gives up His Spirit. He's in charge when His Spirit leaves. He's still in charge. He's the God of Psalm 97, Psalm 99, Psalm 1. 45. As we noted last week, <laughs> he is the warrior shepherd. He's put himself between the wolves and his sheep. And as we noted last week, John 10 18, no one takes my life. I lay it down for my sheep. So, as the pastor, I get the why question a lot. And I just want to make this point. It seemed like a good time to make the point. I get the why question a lot. Why did God allow this? Why did God let this happen? Why doesn't God change that? Why doesn't God stop this? Why doesn't God intervene here? What's wrong with God? Now, I get this question a lot. Some of you who are vocal Christians out in the world, you probably get this question too. What's wrong with the why question? It's always the wrong question. The why question is always the wrong question. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's always the wrong question. It's been my experience that usually the why question, it's, uh, it circles around the individual asking. It's kind of a self-focused question. There's, there's, an, there's an implication of victimhood. I'm, I'm a victim here. Why should this happen to me? I, I deserve better. Hey, you know if you know your Bible, you don't deserve better. You don't deserve better. You deserve far worse. And if you re reject Jesus Christ, you'll receive it. You'll receive far worse from the hand of God. You will receive it. Beloved, Please hear me. You are not a victim. You've never been a victim. You will never be a victim. You and I, we are rebels. This is how the Bible describes us. We're rebels. We have rebelled against a benevolent and good and gracious God who put us in paradise and gave us everything but one thing. But it wasn't enough. We had to have the one thing that He said we couldn't have. You are not a victim, and don't ever play the victim. Ever. Don't, that, this is unchristian. It's sub-Christian. It's not biblical. Do not be a victim. Remember who you are. You are a rebel saved by the grace of God. That changes your perspective 100%. It's a 180-degree change right there. From being a victim to I'm a rebel saved. Yeah, that'll change your perspective. I love how Piper talks about this. John Piper, famous preacher in the States, he says, you know, if you offend a toad, it's not a big deal. If you offend a man, it could be a big deal. There might be serious consequences. But if you offend God, 
It's an infinitely big deal. And you've offended God. And I have offended God. We needed a Savior in the worst possible way. So why is never the primary question that one who has understood their Bible will ask? What is the most important question that we should ask? Do you remember the Philippian jailer? What was his question? His question was what? (laughs) His question was what? What must I do to be saved? The why question is, you know, I've told you this, God, God probably will never answer any of your why questions. He doesn't, he doesn't give an accounting of Himself to anyone. You can demand an accounting from Jehovah. You most likely will never get it. But here's a question that matters. What must I do to be saved? And the who answers the what. So, what's the answer? What must I do to be saved? Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Listen, don't waste your time with the why questions. Focus on the what and the who. These are the, these, these are the questions that matter in a biblical sense. Yeah, this victimhood thing that mankind carries around, it's just another lie from hell. Well, it's how Satan started the whole deal in John, or pardon me, in Genesis chapter 3, right? Hey, God's holding out on you, man. You're a victim. You should, you should be able to eat of the tree. You should be able to, to do whatever you want. He's, God's trying to... You're a victim here. You're being oppressed. You're being discriminated against. Right? It was his first lie. But we are not victims, beloved. We are not victims. If you're an unbeliever, you're not a victim. You're going to get justice. That's not victimhood. You're going to get exactly what you deserve. If you're a believer, you're going to get grace. You're not a victim. You're going to get the grace of God. So, we all have Isaiah's problem. Isaiah 6.5 You guys remember, he had a vision of God. Woe is me, for I am ruined. You looked at some of the other translations. I am undone. I am lost. I am doomed. It's one of the many reasons I hate counterfeit Gospels that emanate from pseudo-churches around the world. They inevitably feed this victimhood uh, narrative of why me? The Bible does not do that. The Bible puts in front of us the what question and the who question. So, I want you to stop and think about that. Acts 4.12, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's the what. That's the who. And that's why we're here this evening to remember what He's done in our behalf.
John, you remember John 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and verses 14. It's how John started his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came to us, His enemies, to save us. The God of Psalm 97, 99, and 145, the, the great exalted I am Jehovah God is in the womb of a teenager in Judea. Now, you know, you have to stop and think about these things. You have to stop and think about these things. He's in the womb of a teenage girl, he's in the manger. He's on the mount teaching. He's riding a donkey into Jerusalem. It's I Am. And He will sacrifice Himself for His people. So every Resurrection Sunday at the International Church Milan, we spend a few minutes looking at His death to remember what your sin cost, how heinous and horrific your sin is and my sin is. Again, I think we have a bad habit in this modern era. I'm not so bad. I guess it's always been this way with human nature. I'm really not so bad. You know, that guy's pretty bad. I'm much better than him. God no doubt likes me better. This is not biblical thinking, beloved. <laughs> if you're guilty of one offense um, against God, you're guilty of it all, as the Bible says. You're guilty of under all the law. One sin is all it took. One sin to, for God to judge the whole cosmos. One sin. One sin. Go home and try to figure out how many times you've sinned. Okay? Go home and, and try to add up your sin. Add up the times you've sinned. Not just in action, but in thought. One sin threw the world and all the cosmos into corruption. This is what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. I think it's Romans chapter 8. So God has emphatically answered the what and the who questions. And I want to just spend a few minutes tonight looking at these things. As we saw last week, Jesus was arrested, John 18. This was no true arrest. Jesus had all the power. He knocked up to uh, 1,000 men down by the power of His... his uh, his voice and His name. He said, I am. They were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And He knocked them down. You may recall, I always remember this. I just love this. He could have called 12 legions of angels. He didn't need any angels, but He says, I could have called 12 legions. 65,000 warrior angels were at His disposal. He didn't have to go to the cross. He went to the cross because He loves His people. Don't ever let that just be doctrine to you. If it's just doctrine to you, I don't think you believe it. I really don't think you believe it. If it's just doctrine, I really don't think you believe it at all. And as we saw last week, the religious leaders who arrested Jesus delivered Him to Pilate. Pilate tried to repeatedly let Jesus go. He could find no fault in Him. John 18, 38. 
but he sought to satisfy the Jewish bloodlust by having Jesus scourged. Again, if you saw Gibson's film, it was very realistic. The Roman scourging was brutal and hideous. Um, it would be a whip that contained metal balls, sharp bone and metal shards, and a skilled practitioner would just simply open up the back, the buttocks, and the upper legs of, of the uh, accused. He would just open it up with 39 lashes. Sometimes internal organs were visible, bone was visible. He would just open it up. This is what happened. If you saw the movie, you have a mental image of what it was. And you remember Isaiah 53, 5. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. John 19, 2-3 tells us that after they scourged God, they put a crown of thorns on God's head, they put a purple robe on God, and they mocked God and they hit God in the face. Matthew 27.30 tells us they spat on God and they beat God on the head <clears throat> with a reed. In John 19.5 and 6, Pilate says, Behold the man. And the chief priests and crowd cried out. You know what they cried out. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. John 19.15, Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. Israel has utterly rejected their Messiah. Utterly, totally, completely rejected God incarnate. John 19.17 tells us that Jesus carried His own cross. This is astonishing to me. This is a, it, if you realize what a Roman scourging is, this is astonishing that He could do this. There was a procession. There would have been four Roman soldiers uh, surrounding him and a fifth soldier out front carrying a placard stating his crime. Who, who remembers what Jesus' crime was? He was the king of the Jews. This is no crime. This is a fact. Because crucifixion was so horrifying and ghastly, many men had to be dragged to their execution, but not Emmanuel. <laughs> Isaiah 53.7 He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb... He was led to slaughter. And then if you read the John account, John 19, 17, and 18, the, the simple economy of words here is, is shocking. They took Jesus to Golgotha and they crucified Him. So you know what that entails. First, they stripped God naked. Then the Romans laid God down on a crossbeam and they took seven-inch spikes and drove them through God's wrists. Then they hoisted God vertically and drove spikes through God's feet. As a vertical beam was dropped into a hole with a thud, both of God's shoulders would have been dislocated. 
Once a victim is hanging in a vertical, vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The chest is put in the inhaled position, and there becomes a time when uh, the man being punished can no longer push up so he can exhale, so he asphyxiates. This normally takes two or three days. Two or three days. Crucifixion was the slow annihilation of a man. Isaiah 53.10 But God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, to render him a guilt offering for you and me. Beloved, don't let this be doctrine. Don't let this just be doctrine. I know you... I share this with you often. I know you have hard days. I know you have really, really hard days. We all have hard days. But if we belong to Him, it kind of puts the day in perspective. Amen? Our biggest problem is handled! Forever! It's over! I'm reconciled to my God! Okay! I lost all my money in an investment. Okay! I'm reconciled to my God! My spouse left me! Yeah, it's awful, but I'm reconciled to my God. My child dies. It's terrible, but I'm reconciled to my God. This is how God intends for us to to deal with all of life. Certainly we do cry. Certainly we do mourn. But we are reconciled to our God. Forever and ever and ever and ever. You guys know 2 Corinthians 5.21 He the Father made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He knew no sin, but He became your sin. It fixes the Isaiah problem, right? God's holy, I'm not. Jesus has fixed the problem. You are holy in Him. You have God's righteousness on you in Him. It's breathtaking, beloved. It really is. So I want you to look at the bloody, brutal, savage, excruciating cross. That's how ugly your sin is to God. You know, I hear people say, well, I don't like that bloody cross. Man, I don't like that Christianity. It's bloody. What they're really saying is, I don't like my own sin. I don't like to face up to what my own sin looks like. That's what they're really saying. Because it took the blood of God incarnate to cover the sin of His people. So when you look at the bloody cross, it's a picture of the wrath of God against you. Those were your wages. Those were your wages. Okay? What are the... What are the wages of sin? You know. Those were your wages. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Isaiah 53.6 But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on God. I say this some. <laughs> I don't know. I actually do know. But it's still hard to fathom. I know why there aren't 10,000 people trying to hear the gospel. 
I know. It's the Romans one thing. We talked about it last week. They're pushing down the truth. They know God's there. They don't care. But really, this is the best news that has ever fallen upon the ears of mankind. I've got the Isaiah problem. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm exposed. But Jesus fixed it. He fixed it. So I just want to say this one more time and I'll get off of it. So you're concerned with the petty whys in your life when God has provided the answers to the what and the who? Seriously! Really, seriously! It's unfathomable that we can be so superficial so often, so frequently. You know, superficiality is almost like a lifestyle for some people. I never think deeply about anything for very long. Oh, I profess to be a Christian, but it doesn't really change how I process life. The fact that God died for me doesn't really change how I process tragedy. It doesn't change anything. I'm just like the world. I'm a pagan in a crisis. You know, as Oswald Chambers has famously said, Beloved, I want you to walk out of here tonight and I want you to thank God for the what and the who and I want you to put aside all the superficial why questions. Now, you may have to pray through some of them and just give them up to God. This is what I've learned to do. Just give them up to God. He doesn't owe you an accounting. In fact, He just owes you justice. That's all He owes you is justice. So, maybe we could move on in our maturity to the what and the who. Oh, here's a good why question. Here's a good one. I give you one. I give you permission uh, for one why question. Some of you already know what it is. Why would Jesus? Die? Why would Jesus die for me? That's a good why question. That's a real good why question. Why in the world would Jesus die for the likes of me? <laughs> That's a good why question. You, you could spend the rest of your life meditating on that. It kind of blows away all the other stupid why questions. So they took Jesus out and they crucified Him. You know that Jesus was alive on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour. That's 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. A total of six hours. Matthew 27.45 tells us, Darkness fell on the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. What is this symbolic of? This darkness. God has poured His wrath out on His Son. Your wages are being poured out on the Son of God. Those are your wages. Again, this would have been, I, without question, the hardest thing for Jesus this separation from the Father. Obviously, the, the physical suffering is, is beyond description, but you and I can't even imagine what the spiritual suffering was. He'd been with the Father from an eternity past. They'd been one in eternity past, since eternity past. And now, they were separated by my sin and yours. Matthew 27.46 tells us that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? 
John 19.30 tells us that God shouts, It is finished. It's finished. He saved His people. He's done it. Romans 8 is true. Ephesians 1 is true. John 6 is true. John 17 is true. It's all true. He saved His people and He will not lose one. He will not lose one. Matthew 27 tells us that He yielded up His Spirit. He's still in charge. He did not die. He yielded up His Spirit. And there's a mystery here. You know, there's a lot of mystery here about how He died. He's got a perfect body. You know, He's never sinned, but your sin's on Him. But it's finished. He's atoned for it. This is, yeah, not the cry of one who's defeated, but the cry of victory. He yielded up His Spirit, the text says, and the veil was rent, the earth shook, the rocks split, and many saints came out of the tomb. Isaiah 65.1, God says, Here I am. Ezekiel 18.31, Why then will you die? <laughs> I always like to say it, if a man lands in hell, he's chosen that. He's chosen that. Because he's been offered a Savior. He's been offered a Savior. So let's pause and make sure we understand what this is about. I've already mentioned it. These are your wages. These are your wages. God has rescued you from His wrath through the sacrifice of His Son. It's breathtaking. If it's not, you've not understood it. And I'm pretty sure you don't believe it. If it doesn't change every day that you roll out of bed. So Jesus' life was not taken. He laid it down. We saw it last week, all the way through this week. He's always in charge. Um, John 10:18. let me just uh, remind you of that great verse. I have the authority to lay my life down. And oh yeah, it's why we're here. Uh, tonight, He has the authority to take it up. We don't worship a dead martyr. We worship the risen, ascended, reigning, returning Savior. And I'm not going to waste any time, I never do, on answering those who are skeptics with respect to the resurrection. Um, you know, there's a lot of knuckleheads making a lot of goofy arguments. But if you struggle with that, I recommend this book for you and or your family and friends. Uh, this is my last copy, so I can't give you this one. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Strobel just piles up the evidences of the resurrection. And I love it that he does that, right? It's, it's a compelling book. If you have a problem with the resurrection, or someone you know has a problem with the resurrection, I highly recommend this book. I'm not going to waste any time. As we talked about last week, this event is the most thoroughly attested event in ancient history. So, the Bible affirms that Jesus is risen. Jesus appeared no fewer than ten times over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. Okay? 
How many witnesses do you need? How many witnesses did it take in a Jewish court? Anybody remember? Two. He's given you 500 plus. <laughs> this is how Western civilization, probably Eastern civilization, I'm not as familiar with it. This is how it's always functioned. Two or more witnesses establishes the truth of a matter. God just wants to make sure He left you 500. He left us 500 plus. So, yeah, Lee Strobel, this is great. This is great, Lee Strobel. Thank you for piling up the evidence. It's undeniable and irrefutable. But you know what? I don't really need it. I don't need the evidence. I don't need it. Why do born-again believers ultimately believe? Not because of scholars like Lee Strobel have stacked up the historical evidence. Well, it's because we're just like Mary Magdalene. Let's turn to John 20. John 20. John 20, verse 11. John 20, verse 11. We could look at many different accounts, but I want to look at this account. The, the risen Lord as He appears to Mary. Okay? I don't need Lee Strobel because this is true. If you're born again, this is true. Okay? John 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped. And she looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. When she had said this, she turned around and behold, Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him and I will take Him away. Mary has a lot of faith, but she doesn't have... Pardon me, she has a lot of love, but she has no faith. Jesus told them and told them and told them He was going to come out of the grave. None of them believed Him. The disciples and His followers were the first skeptics. They didn't believe the resurrection. They didn't believe it was going to happen. But Mary's crying for no good reason. There He is! Right? <laughs> Jesus gave her the promise that He would rise, and there He is. But why does Mary ultimately believe that Jesus is risen? You will say, well, she saw Him. The text says she saw Him, but she doesn't know it's Him. It's not because she saw Him. Why does Mary believe? It's in the next verse. What does the next verse say? Mary. This is why every believer believes. I am the Good Shepherd. 
I know my sheep. I call them by name and they follow me. Nobody could say Mary quite like Jesus Christ could say Mary. And if you're a Christian tonight, you understand. You understand what that's about. Yeah, thank you, Lee Strobel. Thank you for all you scholars. Thanks. It's great. <laughs> Ultimately, Christianity is supernatural and spiritual. Ultimately. You know, you can believe in dead dogma. Uh, there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of people who believe dogma in hell because it was never real. There was never the Mary thing happening. It was never real at all. So you remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders over in John chapter 10, verse 26. And there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians and they hate it when Jesus, they hate it when God talks like this. They don't like it when God talks like this. This is how God talks. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. If you were my sheep, you would believe. But you don't believe because you're not mine. It all goes back to John 17. Okay? And the other times that Jesus has said this in the Gospel of John, all that the Father gives me will come. Man, you can't run from that truth. I know there's a lot of people in the professing church who don't like it. Well, you can not like it all you want. But it's clearly what God says. Jesus says, I call my sheep by name. They know my voice. Mary, nobody could call her like He could. So Mary immediately recognizes the voice of her warrior shepherd. If you believe tonight that He came out of the tomb, you believe for the very same reason that Mary believes you have heard the Good Shepherd call your name. He has invaded your life. And if you don't know Christ in this personal way, and I presume probably almost everyone here does, we have a very small crowd, but if you don't know Him in that way, I simply want to share Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen with you. The ball's in your court. Here's God's promise. You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I always go back to John 5.40. Why is it that men don't believe? Why is, it that men, why is it that men don't know Christ like Mary knows Christ? Why is it true? John 5.40. Jesus said to them, You are unwilling... You are unwilling to believe that you might have life. You are unwilling. This is always the case. For those who reject Christ, they simply are unwilling. So beloved, Jesus is who He says He is. He's, he's God Almighty. And He bled out for you and for me. And though... Most of the world thinks we are hopeless simpletons. 
Thinking that we worship a dead Jewish carpenter, much of the world using his name as slang and a curse word, but we know who he is, we know what he did, and we know what he promised, that he is coming back quickly. So, Christian, happy Resurrection Sunday. Hallelujah. Our Savior is risen. And I, I want to... I want to finish just um, reading from Revelation. You might want to turn with me. I'm going to read a, uh, a lengthy text here. A couple, what, ten verses, twelve verses? I'm going to be in Revelation chapter 5. You can turn with me there if you would like. Revelation chapter 5. Alright, Revelation chapter 5. John writes, <clears throat> And I saw... In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. And as I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. <laughs> We'll sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing in every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. Hallelujah, beloved. Your King reigns. Your King reigns and He's coming back. And yeah, as He says in Revelation, He's coming back quickly. So I will leave you with this. And if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting?
Let's pray together. Lord, I would never believe this. would never believe it. I would never believe it if You haven't left Your Word for us. I would never believe it if You haven't given me Your Spirit. I would never believe it unless You regenerated my heart and my mind. I would never believe it. It's too fantastic. God dies for His people? Who can believe it? Only people like Mary. Only people like Mary. It's the most astonishing thing that has ever been spoken on this planet. So Lord, we rejoice and worship and give give thanks. Who is a God like You? We love You, Father. We love You, Jesus. Thank You for this finished work. And as we've heard these last, this last month or so, you'll not lose one of us. And on our hardest day, Father, I hope that we can remember how much we're loved and how sure our future is. And yes, we have this astonishing promise that you can work all things for the good of those who love you, those called according to your purpose. So Father, I pray that not only, not only will we rejoice in the, the, the truth and the efficacy of what has happened in these chapters, but that it would invade and inform our perspective every single moment of our life. We've got problems. But we don't have Isaiah's problem anymore. You're holy. And now I'm holy in Jesus. We worship You, great God. We love You. We praise You. In the mighty, matchless, wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we?